University is a place of academic learning and an opportunity to grow as an adult. Never would anyone think that it's a place of murder and crime. That's what happened to one young woman who was not only thriving but achieving her dreams at the Ivy League University when her bright life was cut short. This shocking and brutal murder shook her family and friends, the community and university. Even more shocking, she was one of many victims, but she never got true justice, and her family was wronged by the justice system. This young woman was more than what happened to her. I want to talk about who she was before she was murdered. This is the solved murder of Zhang Nyong Tu. <laughs> listeners i'm kat and you're listening to crimes untold crimes untold is a weekly true crime podcast that presents cases you've never heard of before i seek to give a voice to cold cases missing persons and everything in between if you want to hear about cases that have never been told then crimes untold is your newest true crime podcast obsession if you want to support the show then you might want to support us on patreon for a monthly subscription with benefits like at free exclusive episodes merch and choices on what cases we'll cover next Besides supporting the show on Patreon, you can also share the show with friends and family and give a five-star rating and leaving reviews wherever you get your podcasts. Please find links to our Facebook page, Instagram, and to all other social media in this episode description. This episode contains disturbing and violent themes that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised for listeners under 18. All information gathered in this episode is from public open sources. While discussing this case, the utmost respect is given to the victims, their families, friends, and loved ones. Hi listeners, before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you guys know some changes that happened in the podcast since the last episode and that will be impacting the podcast moving forward. So a little bit about myself, I'm an academic and I've always found campus crimes quite interesting. So from now on, I'm thinking about doing every episode, well every second episode um, related to universities, campuses or colleges. I will discuss murder and missing persons cases that happened on campuses or universities or where the victim or killer is a student or professor. But sometimes the cases I cover will be outside of a university setting. Um, these episodes will be called Campus Crimes 101 and will happen every second episode like today's episode. Um, so let me know what you guys think. Uh, on patreon message me email me anything so don't forget you can always like do case suggestions on patreon as well so you can suggest next week's episode um so i'm really excited about this so let me know what you guys think okay now we'll go back to our regular scheduled program zong young Two was born sometime in april 1956 for some reason her exact date of birth is not mentioned in any of the sources nor is exactly where she was born in vietnam ever mentioned 
Details about her early life is also not clear, but Zhang and her family migrated to the U.S. from Vietnam in the summer of 1969. Zhang came from a big extended family that she was really close to. From a 2005 New York Times article, four of her siblings were still alive at the time. It's not clear how many siblings she had, whether or not she was the oldest or youngest, um, but what was clear in that article was that Zhang was dearly loved by her family and friends. She was the pride of her family. So the family moved to the U.S. because Mr. Tu, Zhang's father, was an economist who took a position with the World Bank, a well-known global organization. As recent as 2005, the two families still resided in the same house they lived in since arriving in Bethesda, Maryland in 1969, which is located just outside Washington, D.C., Zhang was just 13 when she moved to the U.S., and I think it must have been quite a change moving from Vietnam to America in the 1960s when a culture shift was happening and Vietnam was experiencing the Vietnam War. However, Zhang seemed to acclimate to her new home quite well. In 1973, she graduated from Walt Whitman High School with honors and secured a spot at Baser College, a prestigious private liberal arts college in Poughkeepsie, New York. It was a women's only college for many years since its foundation in 1861. But in 1969, it welcomed men after refusing to merge with Yale University. Vesa College became the first women's college in the U.S. to welcome men into their student body. Zhang became part of this college and its history. During her time as a Vasa student, she was remembered as being quiet and studious, but not reserved. Her roommate from 1973 to 1974, Victoria Belfour, later recalled that Zhang had, quote, spine of steel, unquote. She was a year younger than her classmates, so her friends took a motherly role towards her, but Victoria also remembered Zhang as someone who could take care of herself. Victoria said that Zhang and her went shopping at Bloomingdale's to, to buy matching shirts and she recalled how much Zhang loved that shirt so much that she would wear it all the time. Another Vasa friend of Zhang, Maria, who didn't want her surname released, described Zhang as being, quote, very bright, sweet, and kind, and she had a wary sense of humor, unquote. Her father remembered her as an idealist who worked hard, and she really did. Zhang sponsored orphan children through mail, volunteered for cancer patients, and joined Ethica's Big Brother, Big Sister program. While at Vasa, Zhang majored in economics following in her father's footsteps Zhang took every opportunity that was available to her during her junior year she spent some time at the London School of Economics and according to Maria Zhang loved her time in London and spent a lot of her time at the theater it was during this time that she began to explore and be more herself I mentioned that Zhang's family were really proud of her well at the end of the year her large extended family all came to pick her up I thought that was a sweet story about Zhang and her family that I wanted to share. Zhang graduated from Basa in 1977 and even won the economics department's um, honors prize. This just proved like how intelligent she really was. Eventually, Zhang was accepted into Cornell University's agricultural economics program as a graduate student and moved to Ethica, New York. Zhang wanted to one day return to Vietnam and support her country to improve its agriculture and its growth. During her time at Cornell, Zhang lived at a rooming house. I guess this was a student residence of sorts outside of the campus when she didn't return to her home on the night of May 12, 1981. The landlady called the police. A few days later, the Ethica Journal printed a missing persons announcement notice with a photo of Zhang. She 
she was last seen reading a newspaper in Warren Hall, but some sources say she had an evening class at Warren Hall, and in the New York Times article, Zhang was studying at Warren Hall the night she disappeared. Either way, it was the last place she was seen alive. I'm more inclined to believe that she was actually studying at Warren Hall the night that she actually went missing. Though it's not explicitly stated in any of the sources, Zhang must have been attacked or killed um, during her journey home from campus. Sadly, Zhang's body was found at the bottom of Fall Creek Gorge on May 17th, almost a week after she went missing. It's not clear if a search party commenced during the days leading to the discovery of her body, or if police at Cornell or Ethica ever investigated the disappearance of Zhang. At first, it was assumed that Zhang jumped to her death, but friends and family disputed this claim. But there was a trend of Cornell students jumping into the gorge. This became um, a term known as Gorge Out, but no one knew then that Zhang was actually the first victim of a serial killer. Years later, it was found that Zhang was murdered by fellow Cornell student Michael Bruce Ross, who later became known as the Roadside Strangler, and who went on to kill seven other girls and young women before he was caught. I don't want to waste time discussing the killer when I could use that time to speak about his victims and the lives they had before he killed them. If you want to know more about Michael Bruce Ross, you can easily find more about him with a simple Google search. I will only discuss facts that relate to him um, regarding Zhang and his other victims. So, Michael Ross was born on July 26, 1959 in Putnam, Connecticut and was said to have had a difficult childhood when his parents married due to an unexpected pregnancy. But his mother, Pat, hated the farm life as Daniel, Michael's father, had a chicken farm. So, his mother actually ran away with another man but returned and was later put into an institute where she confessed to abusing her son and daughter. But Michael's sister claimed his mother actually targeted him most of the time. Michael was unfortunately molested by his uncle as a child while babysitting him when he later on actually committed suicide. Michael took over the uncle's job on the farm which was to kill and strangle chickens. So Michael's IQ was actually 122 so he was very intelligent and he easily got into Cornell University in 1977, the year Zhang graduated from Basa College. He was a student in the same agricultural economics program as Zong, so I assume they had the same classes and he must have seen her before. Michael started dating another student, but after she became pregnant and had an abortion, the relationship sort of fell apart. It said that it was when like, he actually started to develop um, sexually violent fantasies. In his sophomore year, he started stalking young women, and it wasn't long after that when he committed his first rape and murder, which was towards Zhang. Ross was said to be intelligent and actively involved in campus, and this was a side of him that was completely different to the violent side he actually possessed. Ross graduated in 1981, the same year he murdered Zhang. I understand Michael Ross had a difficult childhood and was abused and molested, but many people suffer um, during their childhoods and had actually worse childhoods than him, but they don't all become serial killers, so I don't see his difficult childhood as a reason to murder people. But that's just me.
he went on to work as an insurance agent and he actually continued to live his life while taking other people's lives he earned himself a moniker which was actually the one i mentioned earlier the roadside strangler because of the way he picked up strangled and dumped his victims on January 5th, 1982, Ross abducted 17-year-old Tammy Williams from Brooklyn, Connecticut while she was walking home from her boyfriend's home. Um, she was later found raped and strangled. Tammy's friend, Justine Smith, said they were normal teenage girls who loved to play pool, listen to music, and, of course, talk about boys. Tammy worked at a department store called King's, and the day before she was murdered, she was with Justine. They listened to music by Leonard Skynard. I don't know who that is, but I'm sure it was a big thing back in the day. And, of course, music by the Eagles at a place called Al's 2. Interestingly, Tammy went to school with with Ross and they both grew up in Brooklyn and she even knew his family. Tammy and Justine often used Ross's family chicken farm as a shortcut to get to places. That day Tammy and Justine went their separate ways at Al's and that was the last time that she was seen alive. Sometime in March 1982, Michael Ross picked up 16-year-old Paula Pereira, who was from Middletown, New York. She often hitchhiked and yearned for a sense of adventure. She was said to trust people quite easily because she came from the countryside. She told friends she wouldn't accept rides from creepy strangers. Ross was coming from Cornell University and heading to Connecticut when he picked up raped and murdered Paula on the side of the road before entering Interstate 84. Paula's friend Barbara Emery Willard wants people to remember Paula not as a victim but as someone who was whimsy and innocent. She wanted to be a chef and liked listening to ABBA, the Beach Boys and the Monkees. On June 15, 1982, Deborah Smith Taylor, who was 23 years old and from Griswold, was picked up by Ross when he, her and her husband ran out of gas and decided to split up and look for a gas station near Danielson. Sadly, there isn't a lot of information out there about Deborah um, and her life before she was murdered. Her skeleton was found four months later. On November 19th, 1983, or on Thanksgiving Day, sources different exactly when 19-year-old Robin Stavinsky went missing from Norwich, Connecticut. Robin was hitchhiking but was found raped and strangled when her body was found by joggers a week later. She was found on the grounds of a state hospital in Norwich. This is when investigators started to connect the cases of Robin with that of Tammy and Deborah. They were all the same height, found face down, raped and strangled. Sadly, there isn't more information about the kind of person Robin was before she was murdered. On Easter Sunday, April 22nd, 1984, April Brunez and Leslie Shelley, both only 14 years old, were walking home from the movies to a friend's house or hitchhiking on Route 138, which one isn't really clear. Different sources conflict on where the girls were picked up or what they were doing, but what's clear is that Ross did pick up both girls while they were walking. April and Leslie were from Griswold, like Deborah Smith-Taylor. Ross forced the girls into his car as April pulled out a knife to defend herself and Leslie, but it was no use. He forced um, both of the girls into his vehicle and tied them both up traveled with them to Beach Pond, Rhode Island, where he eventually killed and raped April and then killed Leslie. Their bodies were found in a culvert in Preston, Connecticut. 
sadly there isn't any information on what kind of people april and leslie were or what they wanted to do with their lives or become if they had the chance to grow up and live longer on June 13, 1984, 17-year-old Wendy Barabolt from Lisbon, Connecticut became the final victim of Michael Ross when he kidnapped, raped, and strangled her. She was seen walking down State Highway 12 towards a convenience store. Her body was found days later. Eyewitnesses told police they saw a man driving a blue Toyota and wearing glasses following Wendy the day she went missing. It was later identified that this was Ross's vehicle. It's unclear how he actually came into investigators' radar as he didn't have any convictions or a record at the time, but I'm really glad that they were able to track the car to him. This put a stop to his crimes and it potentially saved the lives of future victims. There is very little information about Wendy and her life before she became a victim. According to the Washington Post in 1987, Michael Ross confessed to a psychiatrist that he strangled and murdered Zong. Ross was already serving time for the murder of four of the other victims, but other sources state he was serving a sentence for one victim and multiple death sentences for that victim, and prosecutors decided it wasn't necessary for Ross to sit on trial for the murders of the other victims, including Zhang. This is such a miscarriage of justice in my eyes. The other victims were denied true justice. He didn't stand in court for their murders um, like he should have. According to a New York Times article on the case, contact between investigators and the two family after Ross's confession has never been quite clear. Time has washed away memories and conflicted information from the family and the investigators has muddled over the decades. Scott C. Hamilton, a Cornell police investigator who worked on the case, said he remembered contacting the family twice to inform them that Michael Ross had become a suspect, first in the late 1980s and again in the early 1990s. Apparently, Hamilton spoke to a male family member who said they weren't interested in pursuing anything for the murder of Zong. When Hamilton called again, someone else said that they moved to Vietnam. Hamilton added that as the convictions were stacked against Ross in Connecticut, persecuting him for Zong's murder seemed less urgent. His words, not mine. So it's hard for my blood not to boil when I heard this statement for the first time. Imagine if your family member was viciously murdered and assaulted, and this is what police are saying about seeking justice for that victim. The prosecutor at the time was Benjamin J. Bucko. He said he didn't remember ever contacting the family and said he could not prosecute Zung's case because, quote, there was just no evidence at the scene, unquote. And because the initial confession by Ross was to his psychiatrist and there were complications on whether or not the testimony of the psychiatrist could be used in trial. In 1989, George M. Dentez replaced Prosecutor Benjamin Bucko as Tompkins County District Attorney. So to, um, Ross's death sentence in Connecticut made prosecution for Zung's case pointless in New York as there was no death penalty when the crime was committed. He claims, and I quote, here he couldn't even get the death penalty and this woman was a foreign student whose relatives, I think, they really didn't want anything done. We were without really a victim or even the survivors of the victim here or even any local interest in the case. So basically, we decided not to persecute, unquote. These senseless and disrespectful remarks about Zhang and her family couldn't be further from the truth. First, what family would not seek justice for the murder of their beloved daughter and sister, especially when Zhang and her whole extended family were very close? Second, family and friends were seeking answers, so to say there was no local interest in the case was untrue. 
third, Sung was not a foreign student. She was an American, and I wonder if they would treat Sung and her family like that if they were not people of color. Just saying... You don't have to agree with me. Lastly, Lan Tu, Zung's brother, was shocked the persecutor would say such things considering the two family had the same phone number since 1969 and were actually still in the phone book in Brasita where they lived the entire time. All this to say the family never moved to Vietnam as persecutor dentist claimed. Michael Melchick, a former Connecticut detective, played a big role in solving the cases. He admitted in 2005 that he assumed the two family knew that Ross confessed to the murder of Zong and quote, there seemed to be some confusion about whether they were notified or not. I thought the police in New York were going to handle it. I thought I felt bad, but it wasn't up to me to notify them, unquote. This was a case of different states and jurisdictions not communicating. Even if it wasn't his job, would it have been too much trouble for Maltrick to contact Zhang's family to let them know that someone confessed to her murder? This mistake prevented the family from knowing the truth for decades, where other victims' families were notified already. The two family were not. Cornell University and the two family argued over whether or not they were ever contacted when Ross confessed. Cornell claimed they spoke to the family during the investigation in 1987. Cornell officials disclosed records in 2005 describing the contacts that they had with the family. It's not clear what these records state, but I'm assuming Cornell refused to take responsibility and the New York police did the same. We'll take a brief break and come back for more of the story. Mr. Tu, Zung's father, said he called and wrote to prosecutors for several months after Zung's murder, but gave up when investigators and prosecutors never contacted him back. Mr. Tu gave up because he didn't know what else he could have done. He later admitted it was a mistake to give up. It's difficult to understand what a family goes through when they lose a loved one to such a vicious crime and at the hands of a murderer like Michael Ross, so we can't begin to understand their suffering and pain. We cannot judge the two family or Mr. Two for their actions because we never know how someone will handle grief. Michael Ross was never convicted of the murder of Zhang Young Tu for his crimes against some of the other victims. Ross was executed with lethal injection in the Osborne Correctional Institute in Summers, Connecticut on May 13, 2005, almost 24 years to the exact day he murdered Zhang. Ross became the first person sentenced to death in Connecticut since 1960 and the first to be executed in New England in 45 years at the time. He voluntarily waived his appeals, though people who didn't agree with this in the public really fought against this decision to, um, during the days leading to his death sentence because of questions regarding if he was mentally stable to make decisions about his appeals. Michael Ross tried to commit suicide three times while in prison and wrote that he spent 23 hours a day in isolation thinking of the victims and his death sentence. He was seeking his execution because he wanted to get rid of his own pain. He was doing this for selfish reasons, not because he felt remorseful brutally attacking and murdering eight young women. The family of the victims were present during his execution and favored the death penalty while others outside were marching and protesting his death. I believe that the wishes of the victims' families should be honored, and for his friend's crimes against them, he received the right punishment, but that's just me. What we must remember is the victims, their lives, dreams, and hopes, which was all taken from them and their families.
Family and friends all describe Zhang as being a hardworking, intelligent, kind, sweet, and polite young woman whose dream was to help others. I'm sure with her efforts, she would have made the world a better place if given the chance. If a cold-hearted and evil killer did not cut her life so short. Family and friends consider Zung as the forgotten victim of Michael Ross, who was never spoken about as much as the other victims. Regardless, all the young women killed by Ross all deserved justice. My heart goes out to their family, friends, and loved ones. Zung ashes rest at a Buddhist temple in Washington, D.C., next to her grandmother. Her father visits every month to pray at the temple and remember the daughter he lost that made him and his family so proud. That's it for this week, guys. Join me next week as we dive into another true crime case. I'm Kat, and this is Crimes Untold. Stay safe, friends.